Hello, and welcome to In Traffic with Neil Rubenstein. I am Neil Rubenstein, and today I will be sitting in traffic talking to Jensen Karp, author of the book, Kanye West Owes Me $300. Hey, Jensen. Hey, how's it going? Hey, man, how are you? I'm well. Hold on, I just... I just... I've had what you would call bad karma day, despite the fact that I did something very nice today. I tapped someone's car in a parking lot, and I uh, I left I left a note, because that's, like, the nice thing you do, you know, like, oh, my God, that's so nice. Yeah, yeah. And then since then, I have only had bad luck, which is just so weird. Huh. Right? So weird. Yeah. I just, uh, yeah, I ran out of gas, although my gas tank wasn't on empty. It just was reading wrong, so I had to take my car into the dealership. And then, uh, and then I went to get my gas, like one of those like uh, portable gas little cans from the back of my car because I have one just in case. And I pop it out, and uh, something uh, completely spilled in my trunk. So I'm telling you now, you might think you have good karma at some point, but it's, it's just a lie. It's like a total fucking lie. Yeah, yeah I uh, I live by like a, a philosophy. Like I've done a lot of bad stuff in my life, yeah. and I feel like I've corrected that course, you know, and, like, I'm yes, a, yes. a pretty decent person these days, but, like, yes. anything bad happens to me, I'm like, oh, that's for all the other shit, like, yeah. we're just, yeah. we're just balancing out at some point. Yeah. So, are you in the middle of something crazy right now? If you just wait, if you, it literally, if you wait five minutes, I can call you right back on this 516 number in week, not even five minutes, literally three minutes for me to just notice this thing in my trunk, fix it a little, and then call you back in two minutes, I will call this number. Okay, uh, well, I like to, I have to, like, record and stuff, so I'll just call you back in five minutes. Perfect. Even if you counted to, like, 300. But either way, five minutes, we will talk. You know what? Text me when you're ready, and I'll call. Perfect. Thank you, buddy. All right, thank you. Hey, man. Hey. All right, we're good. You good? Hey, no way. Yes, I can. I'm all good. I'm home. All right, good, good, good. Uh, what, um, what, what was the end result just now? Like, did that guy call you about, about having his car? And... Yeah, yeah, the guy, oh, I had a terrible, I hit a guy very, I mean, when I say hit, I tapped a person in a parking lot, uh, and I thought and I was the nice person who left a note, which I'm stoked on. Uh, so he called me and was like, honestly, I'm surprised he even left the note. It's so small. I'm just going to go try to get it buffed out. Very nice. And then as I'm, as, as, as I'm talking to him, I'm like, well, my karma is going to fix. And I open the trunk and there's just a, all dog food just laid out amongst my trunk. A bag broke open. It's just like, it was almost the perfect don't worry, your karma still screwed moment for me. Uh, <laughs> but it all, it all, it all happened right when we were about to talk. So. Is it, do you think it's because of the book? Like, the universe thinks you're shit talking Kanye? No, I think if anything, uh, Kanye deserves more books like this. Uh no, <laughs> I, I think I think like in my in my world I I think it's always this way for me. It's like the book is, is a uh is sort of my story of of failing at something and since that moment I've been pretty lucky. I've done 
very well for someone who normally in the music industry, especially hip hop, you kind of fail and then you go away forever. Uh, I've been lucky enough to have like a second, third life in sort of entertainment. Um, so every once in a while, earth has to, the, the heavens has to bring me back down to feeling like I did when I was 19 and lost my record deal. I have to feel that way every once in a while. And if it's dog food in my trunk, I'm happy. That's a better, that's a better <laughs> ending. Yeah. Yeah. Dog, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, dog food in the trunk. Yeah. yeah. All right. I'll take it. Yeah. It's good. Uh, can I ask you, uh, what happened to Ricky Kidd? Uh, well, I wouldn't know, except that recently we've been talking with the book coming out, and Ricky and I had a kid group together when we were 12 that uh, had a small brush with L.A. notoriety. And Ricky moved to Vegas uh, while we were in high school. At the end of high school, he moved to Vegas. And now he has a kid, and he works in some sort of desk job. Uh, but on weekends, he still likes to mess around and get in the studio and rap. Uh, so I'm hoping I get to hear something soon. But I sent him a book, and he was very happy with it. Yeah, because, like, uh, your your publicist, I guess, sent me, like, just three or four chapters just to, like, get acquainted yeah. with what, uh, you know, what we'll be talking about. And, yeah. like, it skips, like, I thought maybe it'd be the first four chapters, and I, you know, so after the first chapter, you're talking about Ricky, Ricky Kidd, and I'm like, oh, cool, I wonder what happens next. And then it, like, skips years, and I'm like, wait, hey, what happened to his friend? What, what if I was, doing? like... What if I was like, Ricky Kidd started a career in politics, and he's changed his name to Colin Powell? <laughs> <laughs> I'd be so like, amped. <laughs> such, a big, such a big reveal. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, man, I definitely yeah. can't put this out until the book's out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please don't tell anyone. That's a real, that's a real M. Night twist in my book. <laughs> that would be so much better. But, hey, he works at a desk job in Vegas. Yeah. yeah, he's doing good. You got discovered at, like, 12 or 13? Yeah, I originally got discovered when I was like 12 at a bar mitzvah, which is where every rapper should be noticed. Uh, and I ended up uh, just mimicking the words to a rap song. A guy who worked for the DJ company uh, ran up and was like, can you do that in the microphone? I was like, sure. And then he ended up being a guy who had some connections in West Coast hip-hop, and he had us open for Ice-T and the Rhyme Syndicate and Pacific Heights and Tone Loke and all these sort of like underground West Coast shows. And uh, we, we became a group, and, and one of the guys, Donald T., who I really liked. He was a great rapper when I was a kid. He had an album called uh, Let the Horns Blow that I loved. And Donald ended up managing us at, like, 12 years old for a few months, and it didn't really work out. But, uh, but yeah, that was sort of the, my first brush with hip-hop hip hop stardom that didn't go anywhere. And, and, like, you kind of packed it in for a minute. When you started rapping again, were you like, did you think you would have a second life in it? Like, were you, or were you aware no. of how difficult the business? Is? No, I never thought that. I mean, I entered a radio contest. That was as far as I wanted to go. Was I wanted to win a day on that radio contest? And that was my entire idea. Was that maybe, maybe if I do one and I win one, I'll have a laugh about it. Um, little did I know, after winning the first one, that there would be like forty more after that, and there was no. No world where I thought it would be more than just a radio contest. And then even after like ten days, and it started to get a little get a little buzz. I was like, well, maybe I'll get a show in Los Angeles. <laughs> like maybe I'll perform at the Dragonfly. That was pretty much, and, and a girl will come. That was pretty much as, as far as I got. And then when it hit like forty days, and I started to get record contract offers, that was when I was like, oh my god, this is a job. That's sick. Yeah, and because I was I was trying to be. I mean, I was in school for writing. Like I was a com I was a comedic I was trying to get into filmic writing for comedy, 
I was going to get a sitcom job out of college. So it was like, the, even though I loved rapping and it was my passion since I was a kid and I knew I was good at it, I didn't really see how there would ever be a career there. So, you know, growing up as a Jewish kid from Los Angeles, you sort of, you're career minded. Your parents keep telling you and hip hop isn't, you know, they don't have, they don't have hip hop boosted at job fairs. Right, right. So you, you don't think of that. And so once the contract started to come, it, it became real for me. And that was when I was like, well, I'm a rapper. So. And what, what year is this? That's 99, 2000, basically right down the middle. Okay, so, so, like, the world is familiar with battle rap at this point. It's not yeah. just an underground culture. It's like, Eminem and 8 Mile and all that stuff existed in the world. No, 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 no. None of that stuff existed yet. No, not in 99, oh. No, much earlier than that. Um, battle rap was still very underground, um, considering no 8 Mile, no, you know, the Rap Olympics was just sort of happening in Los Angeles. Um, you know, uh, little things like that, like Fight Club, Gin on 106 and Park. Like, some of those things were starting to happen, but no, not on a mainstream level at all, no. When did 8 Mile come out? 8 Mile came out around 2002 or 2003. I'd have to look it up, but it's right around when oh, my okay. deal ended because uh, I saw it on my birthday uh, when I just left the company. <laughs> the dumbest idea I ever had was to go see 8 Mile on the day Interscope and I parted ways. <laughs> just a reminder what could have been. Did, did yeah. you... How, how did it end? Like, how did it end? End? Like, new shelves or, or did the record Well, flop, basically, or? yeah, they'd, they'd spent, like, over 700 grand on the record. Uh, I have a, an album with Kanye and Redman and Fabulous and the Black Eyed Peas and Maya and Sugar Ray and DJ Quick and DJ Clue. I mean, literally, it's a who's who of hip-hop in 2000. And uh, I was getting everything I wanted. People at the label like Will I Am and Bubba Sparks would sort of give me shit for, like, being a person who just got everything he wanted. Just literally anything. There was no price attached to anything. Um, when Bubba would ask me what my budget was, I didn't know the answer. I don't, I didn't know what the budget was. I just know that they never stopped spending, never got a no. And then I had, uh, I got sort of an anonymous tip off from the label that that would all change overnight. Uh, someone had called me and tipped me off that everything was going to change. I didn't necessarily believe him, but there was a part of me that was very nervous. And he hinted to the idea that the label wasn't interested in putting out really pushing a white rapper during the time of Eminem's cash cow, you know, really making right. so much money. And it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily from Marshall himself. It came from his team a bit, but in real life, it, I understand it at 36 years old. Why, why even, why disrupt someone in an, you know, why would you ever even jeopardize your relationship with the person who's keeping the lights on by even bringing competition from within the label? So Bubba Sparks and I both sort of saw ourselves. I got, I got told my record wasn't getting put out and Bubba sort of got, put in a shit can for his marketing um at both at the same time basically and so we both kind of felt the effects and and i asked her my own release after being told they couldn't put out that record and you, you know? put it out on your own at some point you were, were i didn't no oh, they, they two songs two songs from the masters i decided to retire from hip-hop but um i couldn't really find another job it was you know they don't really tell you what to do when you're done rapping so uh, a guy from new york this guy eddie who uh is awesome. He's went on, I think I looked him up recently. He went on to manage and basically be part of Twin Shadow, which is great for him. Um, but he, uh, he called me and was like, listen, I thought, I think you're ahead of your time. I think eventually every rapper is going to be acting like themselves that he was right. Uh, and he was like, I want to try to put something out. And I was like, I don't want to rap anymore, but I needed that, you know, even at that time, the advance from a million dollar deal at Interscope to the advance of 
$5,000 from a small indie New York label, I still needed that $5,000. So I took that, I took that money and, um, he got a couple songs from Interscope and then put out an independent record. Cause I saw yeah. it was on, it's on Spotify, so I wasn't sure. Yeah, everything's uh, on Spotify, not through, yeah, everything's on Spotify, not through me, which is by far the craziest part of the story so far is that I have nothing oh. to do with any of that distribution. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Yeah, they're going to be very they're going to be very happy in a couple months when people start trying to figure out my music from the book. So that'll be cool. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to see a surge. Like, yeah. Put it out now. Like all of a sudden there'll be like a vinyl repress. Yeah, it's like who's this uh, idiot? And you uh and so what what did you end up doing right after that? Um well, I ended up opening this uh, well basically I had this publishing money because I also had a publishing deal at EMI. And um, I had a money manager at the time, and he was like, don't be a moron. Like, don't keep buying comic books and arcade games. Like, do something with your money. And so myself and a college friend, uh, Katie, decided to partner up and open art galleries. It was sort of my response to not being able to put out the art that I wanted. So in response, I figured the best possible way is to be a curator myself. And, have, and now curator is a term that, like, idiots and douchebags use. But at the time, I was sort of just really wanting to be an actual art curator. And so – we created art galleries here in L.A., and it was with the publishing money on my side. And uh, we've had an art gallery now, two of them, in Los Angeles. We've, we've had pop-ups in New York and San Francisco and Chicago, and we've been doing it for 13 years now, which is nuts. Did you start writing right away? or No, no, you, not at all. That's what you wanted yeah, not, to do. Yeah, not at all. No, I, the gallery was – I didn't want to put my art in other people's hands. It, I just had this experience happen, you know, the end of my story at Interscope – involves Jimmy Ivey asking me to be an A&R. It was just like the weirdest moments of my life. I was not interested in becoming a suit at the label that just shut down my album. Um, and so I didn't want to, I could have gotten into a sitcom room. I could have done a lot of different things. I had a movie script that had a little attention on it. Like I could have went into writing, but I knew that I'd be putting myself in that same position again, where I'm handing my art to someone and telling them to make it. And I didn't trust anyone. So I really wanted to just do something where my hands and my partner's hands were in control. And so the gallery really did that for me as I sort of healed myself and got to a better place. And really getting that to a place of making money within two or three years was really my goal. I didn't, I didn't write. No, I didn't do anything. I didn't rap. I didn't write. I didn't just focus on the gallery. And, and getting it to that point, then I started writing again a couple of years later. Yeah. And what was the what was the impetus in making this book, like or writing this book now? Uh, for me, it's, it's that I get to end the story the way I want. Um for years and years and years, I didn't talk about this. This was, I've been a, I've been a successful comedy writer for a while, and and most people in rooms I've been in, and most people I've written comedy with have no idea that I used to be a rapper on Interscope Records. They have no clue, uh, and, and I've never told deep stories about it. I've basically hidden from it, and I had a sort of scare, health scare, uh, a couple of years ago, and during that health scare, I thought, you know, the things that would come to mind were my family or the things that I have, you know, regret not doing or a bucket list or whatever. But the one thing that weirdly came to mind is that I knew I never faced this thing, you know, being 21 years old and having your heart broken from what you thought was going to be this big moment for your art and for something you love and having it sort of taken from you. And, and instead of ever mourning it, I sort of just went into the gallery and tried to start a new career. I, I really just wasn't going to be another victim of the industry. And so now this many years later, after the scare, I knew for sure that it was something I wanted to face, and I wanted to write my own ending. I didn't want Jimmy Iovine to have the final say in my career. And I think this book is is sort of the voice from those artists that me and you both know 
you know, hundreds of those artists that come and go, hey, where'd that guy go? That guy got a big deal. Where'd they go? This is the voice of that person. And that book's never happened. And I knew that it would, because the book's not just jokes. It's, it's an emotional journey that I went through. And I think giving that story a voice is important for me. That was a common tale, man. Like, you know, I'm a big fan of C. Albini, and he wrote about that in the early 90s about, you know, major labels screwing over indie bands, bands that were successful on their own even. And, uh, yeah, like, I, I remember, you know, I came up in, in the music scene, and so many of my friends would get deals, and, and scenes would explode, and then just get laid to waste, you know? Like, yeah. an album would get shelved, and, uh, you know, tour support would get, get pulled, and it was just, they were just using yeah. bands to move money around, it felt like, you know, it was like some giant laundering scheme that uh, yeah. Yeah. kids' careers got destroyed in. Absolutely, and there's you know there's so there's so many you know I mentioned bands in the, in the book every once in a while of people that you know if you've been listening you know if you've been watching the industry and, and especially hip hop in the years that money was just being given away to people it's like Sev and Bionic Jive and and Valeria and Haystack and there's just so many names of people that came and went in Apathy at Atlantic and just so many names of these artists that were part of this industry boom, and then you don't hear from them anymore. And and I think yeah. it, it, those people, especially in hip hop, they kind of become a punchline. And I wasn't gonna, and I was a punchline for a long time because you know it, it's a, really a story of excess for Interscope. But the truth is, is there's like a human behind all of those stories, and you know you know because they're your friends. But that's just not easy. And I think that me being able to find humor in it and and sort of tell my own story is is the cathartic, like it's the ending I need. It's really, uh, it's really a bum out. Cause yeah. there's, like, I, you know, you see it with, like, a kid will be 18 or 19, and it'll be his one shot. Like, yeah. you don't get, you don't get multiple shots of this in general, you know? Like, no. some people get lucky, like, you, you had a couple of shots yeah. in, in different worlds, but yeah. kids don't get a couple of shots, and you get misguided and steered in the wrong direction, and then, uh, you know, you just got to go back to school and work at your dad's auto parts store. That's, That's like, what happens, and, you know, and, and, and luckily the Internet's going to not allow that to happen to a lot of kids now, which is a great, great sort of step. But the real focus of the book, you know, hip-hop is just the foreground in which we play in, but the book is really about someone who was a fish out of water, who had my dreams sort of broken, and, and, and the whole idea of trying to make a U-turn at a dead end, you know. So many people, especially people from my era, like they, their their failure or it defined them, and and I was never going to let it define me, and and that was kind of the focus. Is I'm not a failure. I just this one thing happened, and a lot of people have had that same ending at a label, and I just have to adjust. Uh, yeah, I mean you're clearly not a failure. You know what I mean? You just you you gave something a shot that didn't work out, and you gave something else a shot, and it worked out. You know, like that's, yeah. When did you start writing? Like, when did um, you decide that well, that was the, the, the path? Yeah, well, we go, basically, um, the gallery started to do well two or three, four years in. Um, I saw from the list of people you've interviewed, we sell to a lot of the people who've been on your podcast. Um, and basically, like, we started to get into a nice little world of, you know, uh, people who are 20, 30 years old that spend $400 on sneakers but, like, you know, have a $10 poster on their wall. So we started really catering to those kids and spending three hundred, five hundred thousand dollars on a painting, uh, and then it got on its own. I mean, it was it had its own legs. You know, it's what you hope your business will do, which is 
you can get a manager and she can run everything. Uh, and so at that time, yeah, at that time I, I re-got a new agent for writing and turned in a lot of samples. And um, I ended up in my first room with the WWE. I wrote Monday Night Raw uh, in 2005. Uh, and so, yeah, I was back in rooms. And, and, and that was a big help for me and started to write jokes for people and getting placed here and there. And then, and then now I've written on a bunch of TV shows and award shows and uh, right now I'm consulting over a cordon. There's a lot of cool, you know, like it's just a lot of great small gigs, and they all add up, which is great. That's awesome. It's awesome to have that freedom, too, like having a successful business, uh, you know, being able to just do the things you want to do and not have to be forced to take something that Absolutely. might not be the best uh, fit. Yeah, and I know I'm I know I'm lucky and I know that that's, you know, something that I thank God for, you know, but I do think, you know, I'm very new age about this dumb stuff and like I feel like me saying cuz I easily could have walked out of that Interscope deal and got myself into another creative endeavor by getting paid by someone to do it. And I, and I could have done it and I just was like after that second attempt of putting out a record, I was like I'm never doing that again. I'm focusing on the gallery. I'm going to do this from my own hands. I know my vision. I know what'll work. And from there, that's what cleared up my space to go in and say yes and no to different jobs. So it really was my own independence that allowed me the idea to have a clearer mind when selecting. It's crazy to think. It's crazy to think that that first experience when you were twelve, like that, might have been the thing that made your uh, transition out of the inner school thing so fluid and so, like, introspective, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. Right? I've never really, I, yeah. It's funny, I've never really thought of it that way, but but I had, I had faced, uh, when you read the book, I guess, I had faced something at, like, 12 years old again where I had to make a decision, do I want to do this or do I not? And I had made the decision not to, which was definitely the right decision. So you're right in the sense that, like, I knew transition already, and I think that um, I just had really supportive parents too, who, who you know, they weren't willing. They weren't willing. If I called myself a failure, they were not willing to repeat. If you hadn't had that experience at at twelve and thirteen, your your end game at at Interscope might have been like, oh no, I want to do it again. I want to give it another shot. You know, yeah. but but because like uh, you know because you had that that was already the second time. Like that was already. Yeah. It was yeah. already old hat for you, like no. Yeah, and I and I do think like eighty percent of the people put in that Jimmy Ivy meeting when offered an A and R job probably would have taken it just because oh my god where's my next check coming from? But yeah, you know yeah, I, yeah. I my father my father was a car salesman and if I how many times I've heard scared money is it doesn't equal money it's not real money you know it doesn't it doesn't bring money and I knew that that was scared I knew that Jimmy could get rid of me at any time as an A and R I knew that he didn't he didn't like my music enough to put it out no matter what the politics were. Um, so I'm not willing to sit there for a year and tell him what and what, you know, what and which artist should go. I, I was, I was ready to just move on. Yeah. You can't, you can't trust that he's going to trust your taste if he didn't. No. You know, uh, yeah. yeah. And you know, fuck all those guys anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was way before the internet, like Napster had just started to take off and you were hearing people say, Oh, the music industry is going to die. And so, like, even though, you know, obviously there was very minimal writing on the wall at that time, there was still writing on the wall. And I just, I had, you know, Katie and I had this idea for an art gallery and I thought it would work. And that was, you know, I kind of saw my out. You're so, yeah, so you have a little dog food that's not a big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
totally. Uh, I think it's uh, more than balances out in your favor. <laughs> I appreciate, I appreciate that. that. That that's how I feel. I feel that the book is sort of the sort of the last thing on the scale. I think. I mean, the stuff that I read, the couple of chapters that I was given, all super entertaining. Uh, oh, you know, you know. I, yeah, obviously, you write professionally, so it, it should be a surprise. I think people are going to enjoy it. I think it'll, you know. Oh my God, it's and such it's, a surprise! You're, 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 number one, you're overestimating the mind of a Jewish writer because <laughs> even if we, even if we get paid, even if we get paid, there's no way I think it's good. Two. <laughs> Uh, I don't. I, I know you say that. I'm very proud of the book, and I think it's very funny, and I think it's poignant, and I think it does well. But I, I am not sure that people will like it because when you're writing a memoir, every five pages, you're like, who cares? You know what I mean? Like, like, you, you want, like you want to think people care, but you're like, dude, I just spent three pages explaining my parents' relationship with each other. And you're like, I don't even like my parents' relationship with each other. You know what I mean? Like, how is someone else going to like this? So I, I appreciate your words, and I do think people will like it, but there is definitely a large portion of my brain that is asking why would anyone care. But, but I've had great response, and the reviews have been really good so far, so, so I'm, I'm keeping the neuroses at bay. Uh, I understand that. Uh, more than uh, you appreciate. <laughs> I also am a Jew. I... Uh, I'm a stand-up comic in New York where there's a billion of us. Yeah. <laughs> like, there are a billion of you. Yeah, I like. I am fully aware of like. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's very hard. I mean, and that's why. By the way, that's why I wasn't good at stand-up for reals. Like, <clears throat> I wasn't good at stand-up as much as I tried to do it. It's like, <clears throat> and I was. Uh, by the way, I'm very proud of myself for not continuing to do it like some of my other friends who aren't good at it. Um. But I just was like, this isn't for me because I'm getting the same feeling from when I fail, right? I'm getting the same feeling from when I when I bomb as when I kill, and and both of those feelings are very bad. They're not good feelings. Um, so I knew immediately. I knew immediately to not. I was like, well, that's it for me. Um, and then I really got focused on just comedy writing. Yeah, I don't. I, I definitely set like I definitely have two different. Uh, like I can tell. You know what I mean. Like yeah, I don't times, have yeah. the, the the times that I do real well, the crowd's real great to me. You know, they're paying attention. I you know, I definitely it's fun. It's still mm-hmm. it's a lot of fun. Uh I would hate I would hate to have the feeling the other feeling, like the bombing feeling even when it was good. Like I would that's uh that's a tough that's a tough break. Oh my god, I always had it. And I'd go home and I'd go, Well that was a great day and then I'd go, But the next one's gonna be terrible. <laughs> 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 it was the worst. It was the worst. Well, did you do did you do like the cellar? That's like my cemetery. I I haven't done it. Uh my first show at the cellar is uh in uh in June, in late June. All right. You excited? So uh no. <laughs> it, it, it's cool. Like I'm excited that like I'm gonna get an opportunity there, but I know you know it's not gonna be till I am there a hundred times till anyone there even gives a shit that I'm there. Sure. You know, but it's a big like, step. I mean, it, when I was doing the this comedy store is a similar bit here, and it's it's a it's you know it's intimidate you intimidate yourself to a point of being like this is a big deal, but um, I mean I know it. Those are those are the rooms that made me not because I just. I don't know, maybe I wasn't confident enough or something, but I just didn't those are the rooms I I felt scared in. If that's a good word. The, the rooms that scare me are like bars. Like where yeah. it's 
like like a comedy club. I don't care how big or scary the club is. It's mm-hmm. a club. People are there to watch comedy, and the, you know, yeah. it's those rooms where it's like a slug fest, like a knife fight to try and get yeah. people to pay attention to your jokes. And it's like, well, I, you know what? I don't even like talking to people that don't want. You know what I mean? Like. If you're not paying, like if you're talking at me, I'm not even gonna try to talk to you. Like yeah, all right, the, 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 bat, the bachelorette, the bachelorette party room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, you guys are, you guys are, you guys are busy. All right, uh, <laughs> I guess I'll just stand here for eight minutes, yeah. and then and then invite your host back up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it, man. I get it. Wait, so why why are you you get super into music? Because I see most of your guests were uh, like musicians and stuff. Yeah, well, yeah, I uh, I just came up, you know, I I was like a hardcore kid growing up, and uh, all my friends got got big around me, and I liked touring, mm-hmm. so I would just go out on tour, and I just did that for a living, you know, just uh, tour managing or whatever, mm-hmm. and then uh, I got, I actually I got into like television and, and, and comedy a weird way like uh, there was like that big poker boom in the early 2000s yeah absolutely and I got heavily into poker and mm-hmm. uh, a friend of mine was the EP uh, he's actually on a couple of my podcasts Chris Martello uh, he was an EP at Spike and he was doing this casino cinema show and mm-hmm. he needed uh, you know a quote unquote gambling expert Sure. And uh, so he was like, hey, do you want to do this? And I was like, sure, I'll do this, whatever. And I ended up being on TV for a bunch, and I, and I loved it. And I loved, you know, I, I yeah, I enjoyed it. And the people that I were around after that were all like, well, if you want to keep doing TV, you're going to have to learn to write. You're going to have to, you know, sure. do something. Do just, You know, you have to have a product to sell. And then I just, uh, yeah, I started writing, and I started doing stand-up and uh, you know, all of it's fun. So that's where... yeah. There's so many. There, from looking at your list of people earlier today, I was like, man, I, any podcast that interviews Brian Diaz, I'm very in. <laughs> like if you if you if you, have, if you have a podcast and you and you interview Brian Diaz, I will do your podcast no matter what no matter what's going on. You you could be recording uh, into a can. I'll be like, right. how do you how do you know Brian? I uh I I was I worked and was very close and still am with Pete Wentz for a very long time. And oh, so, yeah, you mentioned him both. Yeah, and so Brian was always around. I just think he's so great. I've always been a big fan of his. He's a good dude. Yeah, he's one of my like very close friends. Uh we grew up on Long Island together in the same music scene. And uh yeah. I actually I toured uh in like ninety six like my band toured with Pete Wentz's old hardcore band. Like he had uh he had like dreadlocks and was like a porn addiction. It was really Yes, I've I've seen I I've heard of both of those eras. Both of those both of those years I heard about. <laughs> so uh, yeah, but uh yeah, it's crazy that you know Brian, man. He's uh I yeah, I'm gonna uh, as soon as as soon as I hang up with you, I'm gonna text him and be like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> he's a he's a good dude. Yeah, I basically it's weird like as much of, of hip hop as I was and how I still listen almost exclusively to hip hop. For some reason, I found myself close with most pop punk guys, which makes little to no sense. Like I write the alternative press awards um, for the all time low kids when they host, um, 
And for no real reason, I don't listen to any of their music. I've, I'm shopping a television show with Mark Hoppus. Uh, I've been friends with Brendan Urie for years. Like all those kids are who I'm, you know, Brian Logan Dale, those are the guys I'm mostly friends with. Um, and hip hop guys, I never really gravitated towards. Like I never really connected with any of them. So for some reason, like I'll know Brian Logan Dale's or I'll know Jonah Bayer, who obviously, uh, yeah, you're someone yeah. you interviewed. Yeah. So some some reason those are the guys I those are the guys I consider friends more than anyone in hip hop. That's crazy. That's uh that's cool that you're uh in that world here with uh, me. I feel like uh and I I kinda I don't like talking to the people that I really uh I don't want to be friends with the bands that I really love. Oh really? Either. Do you think they'll ruin it? Yeah. Uh I I've gotten lucky once or twice and it not gotten ruined, but I've uh mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, like I've worked for bands where I was like, "Oh my god, this is going to be so cool," and then been like, oh, "I got such a jerk off." <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, like honestly, that's my fear. Like that's my fear of like a Howard Stern or like someone who my whole life I've sort of listened to and like considered an idol. Like I'm fine with keeping them at arm's length. Like I'm definitely okay with that, especially after you read sort of my experiences in the book with meeting some some of the people that I really look up to. It's like. You know, it's just safer for me to to keep that relationship clean. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't want to like get deeper into this and start dating. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I just, you know, I, 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 we don't, yeah, we don't have to say it, but just assume that most of the heroes you love are pieces of shit. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's where my head's at. That's yeah. that's where we're yeah. at. Um, hey man, I made it to the. I'm here. I'm at the. I'm at the club. So uh, great. The, we're done. Thank you. Great, man. Thank you so much for doing this. No, thank and, you. Uh, and, uh, yo, good luck with the book. And I uh, yeah. I can't wait to talk to Diaz and tell him uh, that you brought him up. Yeah, and tell him you at least should buy a book now. <laughs> I will. The least, sure the, least, will. He, the least he could do. The least he could do. I'm sure, I'm sure he will. I'm sure he will. All right, man. <laughs> Thanks so much. Have a good. Have a good night. Jerk, Neil.